Hello and welcome to the Kill Jump Podcast. I'm your host as usual, Luke Coddy, and joining me on today's show is Alan Buckle, the chairman of the campaign for responsible inside use. Talking about crew, who better to talk to than the chairman himself? Alan, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Luke. Very good. Alan, I think a good place to start on this is to get more of a context about yourself and then we can really take your answers into a bit more context themselves as well. You could talk a little bit about your background, maybe in the industry? Well, I'm getting on a bit, Luke, and I've been around a while, so I'll probably try and stay, um, keep to the last few, few years. But um, I spent a lot of time working in industry and I, I worked for ICI that then became Zeneca, that then became Syngenta. Um, and I took retirement for there and, and ran a consultancy. And it was while I was running that consultancy, probably back in the uh, maybe 2000, 2003, I was asked to chair crew. Um, and so I've been around in this role for probably nearly 20 years. Um, I'm also associated with the University of Reading. Um, they uh, did and do a lot of rodent work there. And I'm a visiting research fellow at the University of Reading. So I have a sort of an academic role as well. Um, when I was in the industry, my background was always on the technical side. So I, I was never involved in sort of sales and marketing. Um, and really, I spent most of my career developing new uh, pest control techniques and formulations and products, both for rodents, but also actually primarily for, for insects. So I, I did a lot of work with, with uh, malaria control, um, dengue fever, all those sorts of things, um, developing new new products. So you spoke there about you've almost been in the role for almost two decades now, so you're probably a good man to speak to. Um, in terms of crew, do they have any core principles or objectives that they sort of pin their flag to, so to speak? Well, yes. So principles, I would say um, the main one um, is that we, we try to be very, very inclusive um, and we have a whole load of stakeholder organisations um, certainly more than um, 30 stakeholders. So we really try to listen to all of the stakeholders. And, and those are people both that um, um, make rodenticide products and sell them, but also the people that use them and whose livelihoods may um, rely on them. So we, we try to make the whole thing as inclusive as possible. We get everybody in the tent, if you like. And when we make decisions, we try and do it around a big table with everyone having a a view and um, then we make our decisions based on uh, what, what's best for, uh, for everybody. So that's the, the main principle of it. Um, what happened with the principles, it, it, it changed quite radically um, some years ago when we were asked to run this stewardship regime, which I'm sure many of the people who listen to this will know about the UK Rodenticide Stewardship Regime. And so it, it sort of crew got a bit turbocharged when, when we took that on. Um, and we then took on the requirement to run this rather complicated and far-reaching na national programme. And so that, that changed everything. Objectives, um, yeah, so you can look at it sort of in a narrow way or in a broad way, but in a, in a broad way, we're, we're only there to support and promote um, best, pa uh, best practice when people are using ro rodenticides, specifically professional rodenticides. Um, we don't get involved in the amateur side of the, of the situation. Um, so best practice is what we're just there to promote. So almost all of our output is, is linked to promoting best practice. But um, since we got the stewardship um, or the job of, ru of running the stewardship regime, we got some really quite specific objectives, 
with respect to stopping anticoagulants getting into wildlife. And so if you like, really now our core objective is to try to present um, a situation where anticoagulants don't get into wildlife or get in as little as possible, but we do want to um, have rodenticides available for the essential public health benefits that they, that they bring. So that's the two sides of it. Um, trying to make sure that people have these products available to do the essential jobs they need to do. Um, but while they're doing that, trying to stop them getting into wildlife, which they really are. And there's a very narrow objective that the government have set on us to do with residues in barn owls. And so our main environmental monitoring objective, um, and now coming down to the very, very specific, is to do with um, um, anticoagulant residues in barn owl livers. And we've got some specific objectives to bring those down. And we've been trying for five years, and it's probably not a secret to anyone, um, that that hasn't happened. So we're, we're now having a good look at what, what we might do about that. I was probably going to come to the barn owls thing a bit later on, but since you brought it up, um, first of all, why were barn owls chosen? Well, it was this decision that was made by the, uh, the government oversight group. So there are quite a lot of different agencies in there. But the main, the main reason is that um, we wanted, or, or you could say they wanted, that, that's the oversight group, um, they wanted a statistically significant change in residue levels. And in order to, to decide whether what we were doing was actually successfully changing these residues, in other words, bringing them down, they had to have a load of information about residues before we started this regime. So they had to have really good statistics on before and after. And barn owls were the only species that we had those before um, data for. Um, we're building up data on some other species like red kite um, and kestrel and, and sparrowhawk. We, we, we're, um, there's work going on on all of those, but the only real one that we had was barn owls. And so that, that, uh, the government said, if we're gonna do this with statistical precision, we'll use the barn owls. And that, that's why that was chosen. But everyone recognizes that that really is a very specific um, source of contamination. They, they don't eat, they, they really don't eat the target animals. They don't eat very many rats. They don't eat very many house mice. So it, it's a, um, a way of studying what's going into a broader wildlife situation, mainly through um, non-target rodents, which are also picking up these, these rodenticides. So did you, you, I think you spoke about looking forward and seeing as to why this objective wasn't specifically met. Have you managed to come up with any reasons why? I would have to say not really. Um, we're giving a lot of thought to it, Luke. Um, and you can imagine that there are all sorts of ideas and, and theories, but um, it's, it's either what we're doing and the things that we've changed are just not enough to make a difference or they are making a difference and just not enough time has passed to allow that difference to be seen. It's a very complicated process um, to, to change the way people use these products and that takes time. And then once you've made those changes, um, it takes a while for things to change out there in the big wide world in the environment. And, and so um, there, there was always gonna be a time lag 
Um, and people thought that this five, that five years was going to be enough time lag for us to get the things in place. And then what we did to show um, that we were, were making a difference. But that hasn't happened. So we're still not sure if we just haven't had enough time or we're just not doing enough of the right things or we're doing actually the, the wrong things. And that sounds as though we don't know. And I, I have to say it's probably true. We really don't know. But what we do know is that we've got to strengthen the regime. And at the moment, um, there are some ideas being floated around um, in the crew task force, which is the wide forum of all of the stakeholders, um, to discuss some ideas about strengthening the regime, which might help us get to this um, target of reducing residues. So we have got some thoughts about what's, what's happening. And, once we've had that discussion and decided what we should do, then obviously we'll, we'll go public with that. But at the moment, it, it, it's an internal discussion within the crew task force. You talk about time. There has more time been granted for these studies and for further research into the residue found in barn owls? Not, not specifically. Um, what happened, it was that we, we had the five-year review and we had a, a big meeting with a government oversight group, and I keep saying government oversight group, but if I, I mentioned it, it, it's headed up by the health and safety executive, but it's got a whole range of other government agencies in there. It includes uh, DEFRA and Natural England and Public Health England, Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, and then it's got representatives of all of the devolved administrations from Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So it's quite a big, a big group. We had a meeting with them, made our presentations, explain what we've done over the five years. And I don't want to, it, it, it's got to be um, seen that we've achieved an enormous amount. When, uh, when you look at all the data we present to government oversight, um, they can see that lots of things have changed in the way these products are being used. Um, the only problem is that those changes haven't brought about the change in residues that, that, that we want. Um, we've had that review. And, and really the government has gone away to think about it, I would, I would say. And we're in that process where the government oversight group internally is considering what it wants to do. It, it's not come back to us specifically saying what we should do or what we shouldn't do, um, but we're, we're expecting some contact with them and we're expecting to have further discussions about where we go in the second five years of the, of the stewardship regime. But they seem content to let things keep um, moving forward. That there doesn't seem to be a huge uh, panic uh, about what what's been what's been going on. So they, they've always said that the regime is fit for purpose. So every time we have a review, we have one every year, and then at the end of the five years, they said it's been fit for purpose all the way through. So as far as they could see, we've been doing the right things. Um, it, it's just we need to work out why we haven't met that environmental target. I guess it's just the case sometimes just trust the process. It does seem like this is one specific factor, just one key performance indicator that's been highlighted. And I guess other stipulations could have been put in place to show further progression, not just this yes. one area. Um, yes. I think to talk about some people that are not as familiar with crew themselves, then I want to go back to a little bit more about the organisation themselves. Where do you sort of see and define crew standing within the industry is that quite an easy thing to define it's quite it's actually it's quite difficult you see um, because all of these things that that we offer are um, sort of codes of best practice 
their guidance and, and guidelines. So we, we, when we draw up one of these, we consult very widely across the industry. So all the stakeholders have a chance to have an input, um, but then we come out with this guidance. And to some extent, people can take it or, or leave it. Um, I know that some people agree with some things that we say, and some people disagree with some things that, that, that we say. Um, but what it boils down to is the, um, the use of the products and the labels that are on the products. And since stewardship came along, crew holds a slightly more um, defined um, role in that um, on the labels, people will find statements like, um, you should follow guidelines like the ones that crew puts out. HSE will never say on rodenticide labels, you've got to follow, uh, follow this one specific guideline. They, they, they like it to be um, reasonably open. But on, on these labels, it says things like that. So that gives um, crew guidance some official and regulatory weight. Um, of course, the people who really determine all of these things are the regulators themselves. And the health and safety executive is that key regulatory body that deals with um, how people are allowed to use rodenticides. So we're somewhere in the middle between the regulator and the user trying to help with specific targets set for us by um, the health and safety executive and the government oversight group. I, I, I like to make sure that people really do understand that wherever they come from and what, whatever um, user group that they're from, um, they have representatives in crew and sit on the task force. So if they have an issue, then they've, all they need to do is go to those representatives and, and it's their representative's job when, when the task force meets is to bring those issues up. So basically everybody's in there. You spoke earlier about uh, almost an ethos to support best practice. Is permanent baiting at odds with that? And if so, why is permanent baiting harmful? Yes, you said harmful there. That's, that, that's quite a strong word. That, that, there has always been a question mark over per, permanent baiting, or at least certainly for quite a long time and the regulators have come down on it pretty hard and, and they, they, they they've started to regulate it and, and to say exactly what products can be used in permanent baiting and what criteria you have to put in place to use it and really specifically when you're allowed to use it and, wh and wh when you're not so all of these things came in at the at the beginning of the stewardship regime the, the issue with permanent baiting is that um, it's usually done, well, no, it's not usually done, but it's done both indoors and outdoors. What I would say is you, you need to think of those two things as rather separate. Most, most indoor baiting is done with, uh, indoor permanent baiting is done against house mice with, with house mouse bait boxes. And the environmental risks of that are relatively slim. Not much else can get into those bait boxes, those mouse bait boxes. And once the mice have um, taken the bait, they don't very often get outside buildings and go into the wild world and get taken up by wildlife. So um, permanent baiting against house mice, we, we believe has quite limited risks. As soon as you go outside and you start putting bait boxes um, outside premises or even on the um, far perimeter of premises, um, then what happens is 
of course, if you keep them loaded permanently, um, you've got rodenticide there permanently. And the purpose of it then is to sit there and wait for a target rodent to come along and take it. Well, what happens is that non-target small rodents, small mammals come along and take it as well. Um, and those are the field voles and bank voles and, and, and field mice. And unfortunately, that, um, that little group of, of rodents is the prey base of so many of our wildlife species. And so as soon as those non-target small mammals get into these boxes, and of course, they're all way smaller than a rat if it's a rat box, so they can all get in very easily. They come out with residues and those residues go up the food chain. And so we think, and again, we're not absolutely sure, but we, 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 we believe that that route of, of contamination, um, bait boxes, uh, non-target small mammals, up into just about all of the um, predatory and scavenging wildlife that we have is, is one of the main routes of contamination. Now, um, there is a place for permanent baiting. It's very important in certain circumstances. And if you read the labels um, about it, you can find out exactly when you can and can't use it and what products you can use. So that's really the top and bottom. We, we have, crew has written um, a, a, a guideline on permanent baiting, all that is set out. Um, and the specific um, uses and the way and when you can use it and what you've got to do when you use it, uh, it is all written in that crew document. So it, it's all laid out there. I'd like to focus a bit on data collection then and research. Uh, how much work from crew goes into that area? Because I know you guys do specific research on resistance mutations found in rodents. Crew, as it runs the stewardship regime, is is required by the government oversight group. I'm going to call them a GOG from now on. Okay, <laughs> um, so it's required by um, GOG um, to do a load of monitoring, all sorts of monitoring. Um, it, it, um, so I've just mentioned the barn owl liver residues. That's only one of the things that we have to do. Another one of them is to um, collect rodents, target rodents, rats and mice, and they want to know the status of, re of resistance. Um, and so what crew does and what crew pays for is for a process where we ask people to send um, either rat or, or a mouse tail um, through the post to the Animal and Plant Health Agency. And they've got some DNA wizards in their labs and so um, those tails get broken down, DNA gets extracted, and we can look in the tails to see whether or not they have resistance mutations. And it, we, we can see which mutation it is, so we can learn which rodenticides would be effective and which would not. Um, and what we do is we map all of that using a, um, a global information system. So we, we, we drop little spots on maps all, all over the UK different colors to tell us which mutations we have in different places and so we track where it's going. Now what I know that um, the government side wants to see is um, they, they, they want to see first of all where resistance is but um, it would be very good if we can develop some resistance management strategies that would start to prevent the further spread of resistance um, and so that, 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 that's another thing that we are trying to, to think about. What we're seeing at the moment, though, is that um, resistance really does just seem to be spreading. We're, we're, we're finding different mutations in different places. They, they, they pop up here, here and there. And so it looks at the moment as though the way we're using 
the anticoagulants um, it is still promoting the spread of resistance because we're still seeing these resistance uh, foci um, popping up in new places. You talk about there on the, on the map then in certain areas, you're noticing trends. Is there any areas where it's particularly populous, this data showing up? It, it, again, it, it's, it's not a very clear cut picture. Um, what we know is that people are, are more likely to send us entails when they suspect they've got resistance, because quite often what, pro, what, what prompts them to send in the tails is that they have a problem um, getting control with, with one product or, or another. So as soon as we, we rely on that kind of sampling system, we immediately create a bias, if you like, towards places where people are having problems. Now, also, there's a bit of a geographical bias, and that's because um, this system used to be placed, placed at the University of Reading. So all the work was done at Reading. And we used to jump in cars, drive around the countryside, trap some rats, bring them back. So we've got quite a lot of, of data from, from the south of England, not much from the far west, not much, much from, from Wales, and not much from Scotland. Although, believe it or not, Scotland had the first resistance, but when you look at our data for Scotland, you wouldn't think so because we haven't got much data for Scotland. And, and, and similarly for Wales, I started my career many, many years ago working in Welshpool on the Welsh resistance focus, but we still haven't got as much data as we would like from Wales. If you look at it, we've, we've got this massive data from central southern England. And so when you see, when you see the map, um, and there's one particular mutation down there, and it's actually the most severe mutation in the world. So these are the, the world's most resistant rats. And that is now pretty much all over central southern England. And we got that popping up all over the place now. And so it, it pops up in new places. How, how it gets from one place to another, we, we don't really know. Um, it, it could, that the, uh, the mutations could be happening spontaneously. So one day a rat might get a mutation and that starts a new spot, um, or it might be rats are actually being moved around the countryside in transportation procedures and, and, and that's causing these, these things to pop up. Yeah, we, we've got most from the south. There's a big area in the, in, in the centre of England, um, and I can mention a few counties like um, Bedfordshire, Warwick, Worcester, Nottingham, Derby. We've got very little from, from there, from that central centre of, of, of the Midlands of England. And when we do get tales from there, um, they tend to be fully susceptible. So there's a suspicion growing that we've got this, this block of, of area in the middle of, of England where we've still got quite a lot of fully susceptible rats. And the reason we haven't got many samples from there is people are not getting too much problems in controlling rats with, with the substances that they're, that they're using. And, and we desperately need a whole load more samples from those, from those counties. I'd quite like to touch on the farming and agricultural sector. I know you predominantly don't focus on uh, amateur use, but when you think of redundancy use, stuff like the farming sector probably raise its head, and I think a few pest controllers would like to mention that as well. Is there anything you can do about those challenges? Can such businesses be audited like that, or is it something crew doesn't want to get involved with or doesn't see as a main priority, I guess? Well, no, we, we really very much do see it as a main priority. Um, what, what, what we try to do, and that's because we, we try to represent 
all of the three main stakeholder groups. And we've got these three, which is one is farming, one is gamekeeping, and the third one is professional pest control. So that those are our three, if you like, constituencies. And we try to represent them pretty much equally. Um, what we know though, is that um, we're worried about wildlife contamination. And so, although everyone knows about urban foxes and, and all the things that go on in cities, but what we suspect is that it's probably the use of rodenticides in the countryside that is causing most of our wildlife contamination. Now, what we know is quite a few professional pest controllers use these products in the countryside because they're contracted to do that. But obviously lots of farmers do as well. So we are really focusing on, on farming. Um, every couple of years, we do a thing that's called a CAP survey. It's a survey of, of knowledge, attitudes, and practices. And we get this survey done anonymously and we find out a lot about how people understand rodents, how they understand pest control, how they're using these products. And we get all this data out from CAP uh, and the data is split by those three constituencies. And what we know is that everybody is moving in the right direction. Um, professional pest control started out pretty good and has got even better. The other extreme is on farm, um, there was a lot to be desired in the way rodenticides were being used and the understanding that farmers had. We've moved it, but we haven't moved it enough and fast enough. And we recognize that. And that, that may be one of the reasons why we're not meeting our environmental target. So we've absolutely got to focus on farms. Now you mentioned auditing and we, we do, um, we work very much um, with the farm assurance schemes. And it's these farm assurance schemes um, say, if you go into the supermarket, you'll see their labels on lots and lots of farm products. The biggest one is called is Red Tractor. So you, you might see a Red Tractor sign on, on things in the supermarket. And when you see that, um, what it means is that the farm from which that product has come is, is really heavily audited by um, Red Tractor contracted auditors. And part of that is how they're doing rodent control. So um, it should be that that all of the farm, farmers who are members of one or other um, uh, farm assurance scheme get their rodent control audited. Um, I, we've probably got more work to do along that line. Um, and certainly when these auditors go onto farms, they've got so many things to look at. I suspect they don't spend as much time as we'd like them to spend on, um, on rodent control, but um, at least they do audit mostly every single year. You touched on this a little bit with you talking about almost imploring people to sort of use their voice and talk to representatives and yes. your sort of plea for tail kit submissions. But is there any other way in which crew and pest controllers can help each other, like a symbiotic relationship? Can they help one another? Well, I'd, I'd like to sort of re reiterate the tail test thing. And um, I'd, I'd like to get as many tails from as many places as we can possibly get. Um, so I, I, I'd like to sort of um, emphasize that again. Obviously what we want people to do to, is to pay the greatest attention that they can to the best practice requirements. And when they use these products, we really want people to pay attention to best practice um, all day, every day. Um, each day they get up uh, to think about it fresh and, and not to get into bad habits. So that, that's, that's the most important thing. And, and um, they can certainly help with, with that. The other thing is that 
if they see things that are being done wrongly, and it doesn't matter what that is. Um, so, for example, if they're buying their product in, a, in, a, in an outlet um, and they see somebody get given some professional product without showing proof of, of competence, or if they're, they're trolling around the internet uh, and they're looking um, for their products and they see professional products being sold and they think um, it, they're not being sold properly, they might be going to amateurs. We have a website which allows people, it, 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 it's called raise, uh, raise an Issue um, on our website. Um, we ask for a few bits of information um, where it's happened, what, what it was, hopefully um, uh, what the product was, all of those things. But if people see things going wrong, and um, then they can get onto our crew web website, um, put that information in. It's entirely anonymous, and we will investigate that situation and try to put that situation right. So um, we can't be everywhere, but we've got lots of people who are pretty much everywhere. So we want people to be our eyes and ears if, if, if they can. I guess finally, Alan, looking ahead, you had these sort of five-year instalments of objectives and so on. What do you yeah. think the next five years looks like for Crew? Well, um, it, it can't be more more of the same because um, it looks as though we, we are we, we, we're going to have to do things differently and and change them again. And I, I really just have to ask you to hold on uh, to that question. We're going through this consultation process is out with a crew task force at, at this moment i've put together a paper um, called strengthening the stewardship regime um, with some with quite a lot of ideas and, and those ideas that that people like the look of and think will work will go forward and we will change the regime um, according to these these ideas that are being discussed at at the moment so it's not going to stay the same there will be changes um, it's just that at this very moment we, we can't say exactly what that will be but it won't be long before we do just want to end then by really talking about those calls to actions you mentioned if people see something that's not quite right they can raise an issue on the website or they can use these tail kits to give you more information or they can use their voice for help change and i think that's all important stuff to keep crews good work within the industry alan thank you so much for being so generous with your time you're most welcome luke thank you it's a pleasure It's a pity we have to end it there with Alan. I know we could have spoken for a lot longer than we did. Uh, I'll make a concerted effort to definitely get him back on the podcast. He said he's up for that. If you have any questions for next time when he returns, just make sure to send them in to myself. That's luke.oddy at killgerm.com. In the next episode, we're going to have Neil Wotherspoon on from Elite Pest Management. It should be quite an eye-opening episode on pest control in Afghanistan. Can't wait for that one. Finally, let's get to the code then. This week, it's Echo Alpha Golf Lima Echo. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.